So I'm going to talk today about the Yom Kippur service with the two goats. I was reading Rabbi Sachs, and he came up with an insight that had never occurred to me, and it explains a whole lot of stuff that's going on today. So I'm going to go some places he didn't go, but the idea that he came up with is the core of it. So the first thing you ask is, what is Azazel? You know, you, you send the goat to Azazel, and nobody knows, first off. <laughs> so there's three ideas in the literature of what I mean. One is a steep, rocky place, which is where the goat gets sent. Another is the name of a demon. Remember we have the thing about not sacrificing to goat demons today in the Torah portion? So another idea is maybe it's the name of one of those demons. The one that Sachs goes with, and so I'm going to go with, is it's actually a contraction of two Hebrew words, ez, azal, which means the goat is gone. So that's what I'm going with. Understand nobody is sure. It's one of those things that's a mystery. Then the other question he asks is why do we have two identical goats and why does the priest confess the sins of Israel on the goat that gets sent out? Because in every other sacrifice, you confess your sins on the goat that is sacrificed. You read the sacrificial tables in Leviticus, so you'll lay your hands on the goat or the bull or whatever it is you're sacrificing, and you'll confess your sins, and that one will be killed, and blood sprinkled before the altar, and all that kind of stuff. This one, the goat that you confess over is the one that gets sent out. The goat is gone. So that's unusual. The other thing that is interesting, and Sachs shed some light on this, we have another ceremony where you have two animals, one of which is sent out. The cleansing of a leper. Remember in the cleansing of a leper you have these two birds, and one of them is slaughtered and the other one is splattered with blood and then sent out. So there's some connection, if you will, between the Yom Kippur two goats and perhaps the two birds. The other thing about the Yom Kippur ceremony, and I had never caught this until it was pointed out to me, you know, as you read scripture, at least I do, you sort of go along and it says, and then you'll be forgiven for your sins, you'll be cleansed from all of it. You, you just sort of blow through that. I mean, you read it, but it just sort of blows by you. Well, Atonement and cleansing are different. You can tell they're spelled differently, right? Two different concepts. And I had always just sort of thought, atonement and cleansing, and you know, on we go. Everything's done. And it's not. It's different. And this is the place where both atonement and cleansing show up. In all other sacrifices, the blood of the sacrifice atones. There's no mention of cleansing. So atonement... The root of the word means to cover. So, for example, when the high priest sprinkles the blood on the mercy seat, and you've all heard this before lots of times, you have these two angels with downcast eyes. And what they're doing is they are looking at the Torah inside the box through a layer of blood. Everybody get the symbolism there? That God looks at our sins through a layer of blood, the blood of Christ. So symbolism is there, but, but atonement literally means to cover. Whereas in the Yom Kippur service, your sins are atoned for, they're covered, but it also are washed away. 
And the insight that Sachs has there is atonement is for acts or sins, cleansing is for people. So the sin judicially being taken care of, covered, is one thing. But even though you know your sins are forgiven, most of us have real trouble letting go of them. Now, if you've done something pretty scummy, and you've gone and you've confessed, and you believe you've received forgiveness, which you have, it still preys on your mind. And so what cleansing does is washes the sin away. And one of the things that happens in Christianity is there's all sorts of songs. You know, my sins are washed away, I'm cleansed whiter than snow, all that kind of thing. That's different from being forgiven. So being clean is different than being forgiven. One is judicial and the other one is personal. And that happens here in the Yom Kippur service. Now, the insight that Sachs gave me is the idea that you lay your sins, if you will, confess your sins on the goat, and that goat is sent out. Your sins are washed away. They are taken away outside the camp. They're no longer on you. And then the other part of you goes into the tabernacle as a living sacrifice to goats. The idea here then with the goat is gone, if that's what the Azazel means, is the goat is gone, which means that your sins are gone. And you no longer have to think about them. You're clean. The place Sachs goes now is, I think, just fascinating. And he talks about monotheism and polytheism. For any of you that know anything about any of the mythologies of the world, Greek mythology, Norse mythology, all of these mythologies, the spiritual world is represented as competing entities. So there are lots and lots of stories about one god fighting over another god and they're struggling and that struggle plays itself out in the world. So for example, the Trojan War is portrayed as a conflict in the heavenlies that causes Helen to be kidnapped by Paris of Troy. And that lights off a war and, and all sorts of things. But the real conflict is up in heaven. The Trojan War is just the outworking of that. Greek tragedies. Everybody know the story of Oedipus? I will tell you quickly for those of you who don't remember it. Oedipus was the son of a king. And there was a prophecy given to the king that the son will kill the father and marry his mother. And they say, whoa, that's bad stuff. So what they do is they take the baby and they ship it off with a shepherd to be left out on a hill to die. The shepherd has pity on the baby, raises it, and the kid then grows up in a different city, away from his parents. And he gets adopted by the king. And there's an oracle given, and the oracle says, you're going to kill your father and marry your mother. And Oedipus says, whoa, I don't want to do that. And mom and dad, who are actually foster mom and foster dad, but he doesn't know that, I don't want to kill my father and marry my mother, so I'm going to get out of town. He goes out of town, and he actually heads for the place where he was born. On the way, he meets an old man, they have a quarrel, and he kills him. Turns out the old man is his father, the king. Gets to the new city, and lo and behold, marries his mother. The point of the story is, this guy is trying to do the right thing. He doesn't want this prophecy to come about. Everybody is disgusted by this prophecy and doesn't want it to happen. 
but forces outside are conspiring and even though he is trying to do the right thing these irresistible forces make the prophecy come true and he has no choice in the process that's all of Greek tragedy there's various incarnations of it but it's all over paganism and Greek tragedy the idea that something is happening that you have no control over and as good as you try and be forces outside you are going to make you do other stuff that's paganism in a nutshell monotheism is different that conflict is moved inside and now you have one God who has several attributes so you have the attribute of mercy you have the attribute of justice and so forth so all of that stuff is moved inside which means that it's moved inside of us and we can no longer blame external impersonal forces for the things that happen to us we have to take blame for it ourselves there are no norns or the fates or the furies or any of those kinds of things there's none of that you don't get to do that now I'm gonna start talking about scripture as if it is metaphor don't anybody misunderstand me I believe Abraham and Isaac and Jacob existed I believe Adam and Eve existed I believe Jacob and Esau existed but I'm going to talk about them in metaphorical terms I'm not running off and being new age on you I'm just saying that the way scripture chooses to describe these events can also be recognized as metaphor in other words as God or Moses or any of these people wrote these things down they had a choice about what vignettes I mean we don't hear about Cain and Abel's potty training because it's not important to what the Bible is saying so I'm going to talk about metaphor here but don't get me wrong I'm not going off and being new age I believe that the Bible is actually correct so the Bible is full of pairs remember our two goats remember our two birds the Bible is full of pairs and those pairs are contrasted to teach us something what's the very first pair in Scripture Adam and Eve and what do we have we have two sides of the same being remember Adam and Eve started off as one being and they were separated so now you have masculine and feminine I will suggest also that you also have emotion and reason I'm not being anti-feminine here I'm just saying that the vignette here is a separation and the enemy comes and convinces the emotion side if you will using emotional arguments and everything is corrupted so what you have then is a metaphor if you will in the first couple of how we got into this mess and what is the thing that they try and do when God confronts them with what's happened they try and dodge the blame the devil made me do it the woman that you gave me made me do it so what we have there is a shift now because God doesn't accept that excuse what we start off with is the first couple if you will attempting the Oedipus defense I was trying to do the right thing but forces outside of me made me act this way and so the first vignette in the Bible is saying that the worldview of Oedipus and the Greeks and polytheism is wrong it's all inside you you have the choice well what's the next vignette another pair Cain and Abel and metaphorically what you have in Cain and Abel is the spirit and the flesh this flesh is warring against the spirit 
And what happens when the flesh kills the spirit? And by the way, you can go to Paul, and Paul says that as flesh and spirit, we're talking about Cain and Abel. Same thing. And what happens when Cain brings the wrong sacrifice? He gets grumpy, and what does God say to him? Genesis 4, 7. This is God speaking. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. And of course, Cain, the flesh, then rises up and kills his brother. And what happens when God confronts him? He tries to shift blame, doesn't he? Am I my brother's keeper? So this idea of shifting blame, not taking responsibility for what we've done, is very much fundamental the way we're made. And what God is doing in Scripture and what monotheism is doing is saying, no, that's not acceptable. You've got to bring it all inside you and you've got to manage that conflict so that you take responsibility for what you've done and you do the right thing. And by the way, when you don't do the right thing, I have set up a system where I will cover that sin and I've set up another part of the system where you can wash it away. Let's go to our next vignette, Isaac and Ishmael. There, the conflict appears to be sexual. So you have Isaac, who's the son of promise, and you have Ishmael. And the little vignette that causes Sarah to look at Ishmael and say, get that kid out of camp, appears to be sexual. Because the word that describes how Ishmael is looking at Isaac is used in lots of other places about people fooling around. It's fairly subtle, but that may in fact be the problem. So we have Adam and Eve. The problem there is emotion and reason. Cain and Abel, spirit and flesh. Isaac and Ishmael, sexual difference. Then we go to Jacob and Esau. Another pair. And Ray had a really good insight in a sermon that he gave a number of years ago that I have not forgotten. Jacob and Esau are different. Jacob is the spirit, if you will. Esau is the flesh. And when Jacob steals the blessing, what happens is Jacob must become, in a sense, Esau. So the division between spirit and flesh that we see in Jacob and Esau now gets melded into one, which is Jacob. And he goes away for 20 years, and he becomes a man of the field. And when he comes back, we have this wrestling match with the angel, remember? And what he's doing is he is wrestling internally, and remember I'm talking about metaphor here, not doubting that it actually happened, but it's also a metaphor because of the way it's written. So what happens is, as he comes back to meet his brother, he has this internal wrestling match where he has got to reconcile the spirit and the flesh. So these little vignettes, all of which involve pairs, comes back to the two goats comes back to the two birds. Let's look at the two birds for just a second. This is the first time that ever made sense to me. I mean, you know, God wrote it down. I'm sure it means something, but now it seems to make sense. Because what is the cause of leprosy biblically? Lashon hara, evil tongue. So what happens is when you are going to cleanse the leper, he has gotten into that fix because of his evil tongue. And so what you do is you slay one bird, forgive the sin, and you send the other one out 
like a bird goes wherever it wants. The words that he has spoken go wherever they want. He no longer has any control of the words he has spoken. You've all heard the rabbinic story where a man goes to the rabbi and confesses that he'd been bad-mouthing him. And the rabbi says, I'll forgive you, but take this pillow, rip it open, and throw it up in the air. And he says, now, in order to actually fix the damage that you have done, you need to go collect every one of those feathers, which is, of course, not possible because you don't know where they've gone. The same thing with the bird. The bird is carrying those words, if you will. They're carrying them away from the guy who has been cleansed and forgiven. So his words are gone, tearing away. But the metaphor there is, yeah, we forgive you. Yeah, you're clean. Yeah, you can come back into the camp. But where your words went, that can't be fixed. So this idea of two animals goes, I will suggest to you, all the way back to the garden in a series of pairs over and over and over again. And we see in each one of those vignettes the spirit and the flesh, if you will, warring in different arenas each time, but it's always this dualism. And what we're expected to do is bring that conflict inside and resolve it as opposed to putting it outside and placing blame on impersonal forces that we have no control over. As I say, I've gone some places, Sachs didn't go, but that was all suggested to me. Now, responsibility. If you take responsibility, what you have to do is say, I did it, I'm sorry, and I won't do it again. That's taking responsibility for what you've done. What most of humanity wants to do is well, yeah, I did it, but it wasn't my fault. I didn't have any choice. I was just following orders. The devil made me do it. That woman you gave to me, she gave it to me and I ate. That's what we want to do. We don't want to take responsibility. And what we have in our culture right now is the ascendance of this pagan worldview. That's what all of this victim status Pokemon points for what kind of victim you are, and the more Pokemon points you've got, the more status you have because of the bigger victim you are. That's all paganism. We've got two proud sodomites right now who are national politicians. One of them is our governor, and the other one is the mayor of some city in Indiana. They are proud sodomites. And Budagag, he is picking a mock fight with Mike Pence. And what I will suggest there is we have another pair. We have the spirit and the flesh, where in this little vignette that is being played out on the national stage, our proud sodomite has picked the vice president as being the personification of virtue, and he has chosen as the flesh to war against him. Now, this is a one-sided fight because the vice president isn't playing, but that's what's being played out. And by the way, it's very deliberate. It is not accidental. And what is the position of our proud sodomite from Indiana? God made me that way. God made me this way. It's not my fault. You see what's going on? And it has been going on since the very first vignette in the Bible. And as you see this played out, don't fall for the God made me this way excuse. 
I am of the opinion that had he wanted to, God could have made us perfect. He chose not to. For whatever reason, he chose not to. Which means that each one of us, as he goes through life, is going to have things that, that God expects you to overcome. Some of us have, apparently, more severe challenges than others. But until you are in somebody else's skin for a while, you don't recognize how severe their challenges are. So the things we see on the surface are just that, superficial. So don't ever fall for this, well, God made me that way, therefore it's not my fault. Therefore you must accept it. Therefore you cannot condemn my sin. You see how the catechism goes? And as I say, we are seeing that played out on the national stage, and all you have to do is go back to Genesis, and you see all of those same things being played out again. Now, the other part of this victim status is, if I am not responsible for the sins that I commit, that must mean somebody else is. And so what I will do is I will say that I'm not responsible for my situation. You are. Whatever you happens to be. The current fashionable you is white straight males. But it shifts. I mean, don't get all excited about that, all you white guys. It'll shift. That just happens to be what it is now. Recognize the technique. I am not responsible for what I do. Somebody else must be. You're a convenient scapegoat. You're a convenient scapegoat. And by the way, convincing someone that somebody else is responsible for their dysfunction is really easy to do. Oh, there, there, it's not your fault. It is the rich people. It's the bankers. It's whoever. There's always somebody that you can pick to be the focus of your misfortune. And it's very easy for demagogic politicians to point that out and assemble a movement. Watch it all the time. Now, one last thing, and I'll quit. My dear wife is very logical. And she reads the news, and she sees the hypocrisy, contradictions, and everything. You know, it just makes her like fingernails on a blackboard. And I keep telling her, you need to understand that illogic is a feature. It's not a bug. These people are illogical and they are confidently illogical and they are illogical at the top of their voices and they are hypocritical at the top of their voices and one of the benefits of that is it drives people like my wife nuts I'm serious I am dead serious that is part of the technique because if they can get you focusing on ah that's illogical you're not being terribly effective in other areas now one of the things about Satan or the people who follow him, or the pagans, if you will, who are victims, is they don't believe that truth actually exists. Truth just happens to be what I want it to be right now. And because they don't believe that truth exists, they have no fixed moral code. So you have politicians, for example, who if you go back and read their speeches, were dead set against homosexual unions. I won't call it marriage because that's not what it is. Obama, absolutely dead set against it, turns on a dime and supports it once he's in power. 
That's because he has no fixed moral code. And because they have no belief that truth exists, they have no fixed moral code, they see no need to be honest, which is where we come back to the problem that my dear wife has. These people are not honest. They don't see a need for it. The words that they speak are just whatever needs to be said to get advantage in the current situation. That's all their words mean. They mean nothing else. What is it that I have to say in this circumstance to gain advantage? That's literally all their speech means. There's a commercial going on right now, which I think is just wonderful. It starts off with Democrats control all of Colorado government, and you promised us a new and better Colorado. That's not what you're giving us. Well, duh. The point is, they have no fixed moral code. They don't believe that actual truth exists. Therefore, there's no need to be honest. It is simply, what do I say under these circumstances to gain advantage? And this goes clear back to the garden. You have Cain. When confronted by God, I'm not my brother's keeper. Of course, you can't fool God, as opposed to most people. So, the point here is, the Bible, from the beginning, from the very first vignette, is telling us that external forces are not what is making you do it. Everything that you do is your responsibility. And what God is saying is, I want you to accept responsibility for what you've done. I do not want you to try and shift responsibility to anybody or anything else. And when you do accept responsibility for what you've done, I will forgive you. And furthermore, I will wash you and make you clean. That's what God says, as opposed to the rest of this stuff. So, go out and take responsibility for your own sins.